Feminism didn't start originally asking the question, how do we help women as women? It's, it asked the question, fundamentally, how do we help women become more like men? That's really the kind of thing that the communists were trying to replicate in the United States, and they knew that they couldn't do it just with you know, military power. So they ended up shifting gears and trying to do it on a cultural level. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lila Rose podcast. We have been exploring feminism and the patriarchy, toxic, the toxic war and masculinity. We had Nancy Piercy on to talk about that, uh, toxic femininity, some of these themes that are really dominant today in a lot of cultural narratives in politics. Very important. What is femininity? What is masculinity? What do these things mean? We're going to have a great treat today. We're going to be talking with Dr. Carrie Grass, author of 10 books, as well as a philosopher. And she recently wrote the book, The End of Woman, which is really a deep dive into the history of feminism, the good, the bad, the ugly, mostly the bad and the ugly. Let's be real. We're going to get into that with her, but also the origins of what this idea about smashing the patriarchy came from and really what today the fruit of gender ideology, et cetera, where it originates. So it's a really fascinating conversation we're going to have. I think you're going to love it. First, wanted to also thank our patrons. Uh, we have a Patreon up and running now. I'm going to be doing my first live stream next month. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be really fun. We're going to do a live Q&A and we're going to, I'm going to take questions, going to answer questions and just talk about some of the future of the podcast. If you haven't already, you can join the Patreon at the link in the bio, become a patron at $5 or more a month, and you can get access to the weekly, or the, not the weekly, the monthly live streams that we will be doing in the future, starting with next month. I really hope you join. This will help the podcast grow and reach more people. As always, don't forget to like this video and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube, and leave us a review and a five stars. That will help the podcast reach more people. A special thank you today to our sponsor, Seven Weeks Coffee. Seven Weeks Coffee is what I drink every morning. It's delicious, gourmet, organic coffee that is pro-life coffee that fuels the pro-life movement. 10% of all revenues for Seven Weeks Coffee goes directly to the Pregnancy Center movement that supports young mothers, families, babies in need. So when you drink this delicious coffee that you're going to love, you are supporting the pro-life movement. Become part of the coffee club. Go to sevenweekscoffee.com. Use the code Lila for 10% off your order. And when you drink seven weeks coffee every single month, you are fueling not just yourself for your busy day, your work day, your day chasing after your kids, whatever it is, you are fueling the pro-life movement, sevenweekscoffee.com. Every Life is the pro-life diaper company. Every Life are amazing diapers that are ethically sourced, that are just great for your little one or for your niece or your nephew or your grandchild or your best friend's babies. It's the perfect present to give. It's the great diaper company to be a supporter of, to get your diapers from. You can go to everylife.com to order your diapers. You're going to love this diaper, not just because they're great diapers, but because this is a pro-life company that donates part of the proceeds to pro-life organizations like your own live action. Check out everylife.com and use the code Lila10 at checkout for 10% off your first diaper order. I'm so delighted to have Dr. Carrie Gress on the show today. Thanks, Carrie, for joining. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here with you. Awesome. So what inspired you, you writing The End of Woman? Yeah. No, I think that's a, a great question. Um, I was really focused and, and just amazed that we can't define what a woman is at this point. I think that was 
kind of the big impetus was just that question. Why can we not answer this very easily in our culture today, especially when there's so much focus upon being a woman and, you know, all of the language that we see out there and the rhetoric. So that that was part of it. Um, I'm also a mom and, you know, I have two girls and three sons. So I worry about both of them equally. And I, you know, I don't want to see my sons you know, or my daughters mistreated. Um, so I think that that's it. I also think, um, you know, I've been looking at feminism for a long time and looking at women and looking at the data on are women happier because of feminism. And um, it's just not fleshing out the way that people think it is. And so all of those things just kind of led me to start really digging into this. And I had already looked back at the first wave or the second wave of feminism, but I I really dove into the first wave for this book and found some really startling results. So um, yeah, it was just a myriad of things. It just felt like it was the right time to finally write on this topic for a broad audience. Now, the first half, at least of the book, is really an in-depth history of the thought Mm -hmm behind feminism. And I think you start in the 1700s. And I want to start with terms. And then I want to go through that history because it's really fascinating. And I think surprising. It will surprise people listening, whether they're more towards the right or the left. It's just very compelling stuff. So let's start, though, with the definition of the word feminism or feminist. These words are used frequently. They're thrown around. How do you define feminism? Yeah, Um, I think that's a fantastic question. And that's why we have so many problems is it's very hard to define it. Um, But what I did was going back to the very beginning of feminism. I, I discovered that there were three elements to it that we can see actually up to our own day that just kind of kept cycling through um, over and over again. You see them just resurface and go under and resurface, and um, they've become very omnipresent, I think, in the, the current age. Um, so the, the three elements that I think belong to feminism, the way to define it is to consider, first of all, the um, the idea of free love. That's always been a part of, of the movement. Um, and then the second idea would be the occult. That's been another element that's that's key to it. And then the third is this idea that came to be known as smashing the patriarchy. Um, this is one of the earliest ideas, really this idea of, of restructuring society and kind of collapsing down any kind of hierarchy like the military or anything related to um, the Christian churches. Um, and so that those those are the three sort of cornerstone ideas that then um, you know, fan out as I as I just mentioned, but that that's really how I would define it at this point. And I know obviously there are plenty of people that define it differently, but mm-hmm. those are the three hallmarks that I've discovered. You know, throughout the the, the movement itself. So how does this uh, how does this fit with? There are many self identified Christian or Catholic mm-hmm. feminists who say, yeah. well, we're not looking to smash any men or to yeah. you know, undo morality around sex or to destroy mm-hmm. children in marriage. We're looking to uphold the equal dignity of women and mm-hmm. their unique contributions and make you know, any space that's available to men in terms of commerce and business and educational mm-hmm. opportunities or civic um, engagement. We want to make those spaces mm-hmm. open to women as much as they are to men, not to force women into the space if they don't want to choose to go there, but to say, right. you're welcome if you choose it. How do you, uh, uh, you know, look at those two, you know, the very negative view of feminism that you just opened with, which I agree, there's definitely a lot of history that fits that, Mm -hmm. but then this more positive view that some people have today. Yeah. No, I think this is a great question and something that I've really wrestled with for years. Um, I'm I'm a Catholic, and so I've really, I know the work of John Paul II has dove into this and Edith Stein. Um, The hard thing is the fact that it's, feminism has become so nebulous in the minds of so many people. And I think, um, you know, if, if there are Christians or Catholics that want to embrace it, then they have to be 
incredibly specific about exactly what they mean. Um, because this has been part of the problem is that we, you know, we sort of have this sense that feminism has been this very, you know, benign grandmother who's sort of been guiding women to, to a, a better future. And when you start looking at what has really happened, you really actually start seeing that it hasn't been benign at all. And in fact, it's actually been arguably the most deadly ideology in all of the, you know, 20th, 20, 21st century. Um, the numbers of abortions that have been a direct result because of feminist ideology completely dwarf anything that Hitler did or Stalin did, Mao, um, you know, on and on. We've seen all these huge numbers of, of people slaughtered because of ideologies. Um, so I think that that's a real thing that people have to consider is that this isn't just some sort of friendly, loving thing. It, it, it's actually been incredibly deadly and dangerous and has, um, you know, really been a, actually, a, I think you could call it a gateway drug to what we are seeing in the woke mm -hmm. culture, because if feminism hadn't been so effective, we wouldn't have the, the issues that we're seeing now in the, in the woke ideology as well. So, uh, I, again, I think, um, you know, there's not really much room. If you look at this core definition for Christians to be engaged in those things, mm. I think it can be done. You could you could argue there's there's a, a feminism that's that is different than that, but you have to be incredibly specific and very clear about about your terms. And I, I think that's just a hard thing to do at this point because the the word's so nebulous. What's the etymology of fem of the word feminist? Um, you know, I think that it it didn't start from the very beginning. It actually, came from the the French and was picked up late in the 1800s, I think. Um, but yeah, it's it was something that was developed over time. Mary Wollstonecraft is considered sort of the godmother of feminism, and she um, certainly was not considered a, a feminist herself. So that it came about much later as the movement grew in you know England and and France and and certainly do we do we need a new term? Do you think? I mean, for, for those that are trying to advocate for you know equal dignity of men and women mm -hmm. and this more um, ultimately the Christian view of womanhood and, and manhood and marriage and the, all of these things, which is still countercultural, not just because it rejects mm -hmm. feminism, but I think it does reject, um, you know, a, 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 a maybe a more hyper fundamentalism as well that I think doesn't see the equal dignity of the sexes. And wow. so, you know, kind of sees that women have this like independent moral nature from men and they have these different moral natures. And mm -hmm. uh, so they need to be treated differently. I think there's uh, mm -hmm. a lot of philosophical danger that you can go down a different path. Obviously, I think the most mm -hmm. dangerous thing today is the pro-abortion, anti-marriage feminism that you're doing a great job of exposing in your book. But I guess, you know, the question here is what do we do in terms of the language? Because it is such a problem that yeah. we have Christians and Catholics who, and I've in the past identified as I'm a pro-life feminist. I wrote an op-ed about 10 years ago, you know, trying right. to shatter the stereotype that being mm -hmm. pro-woman means to be pro-abortion, because uh, mm -hmm. it's not, obviously. But right. it is a problem because feminism yeah. today at large, I think, is more rooted in what you started off with, the occult free love movement and smashing the patriarchy, you know, attacking men, basically, versus uh, goodness and truth about women. Yeah. Is, yeah. Do you have a, you know, a, a, an opinion on that, what maybe Christians no, and Catholics I, can do to change the language? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a, a great question. It's something that I've asked myself because I think, you know, all of us have been that stage. And the, the one thing that the left has done that's been so amazing and, and kind of overriding is just they, they've created this binary that we either think of ourselves as feminists or we think or we are painted as like doormats or, um, you know, this this 
cult-like, you know, we've got to put on our red robes and our red bonnets, cult-like fertility sort of um, image. And so I think that that's the hard thing, too, because nobody wants to be, you know, Christians don't see themselves in the, the radical feminist camp, but they also don't feel at home in this other, you know, option. And so um, I really think it's there's some some threading the needle with just normal women, you know, that that can move in this this direction. But um, yeah, I would love to if if people came up with new language, a new a new word. Um, it just feels like the word itself is so fraught with, you know, d- damaging ideas that um, it, it's it doesn't have enough. It, it's not clean enough to really lead people to the right direction. Um, there's just so much room for, for confusion and people falling into a lot of these ideas. So, um, I think that's a problem. And I think the, you know, the other thing that's really important for us to, to point out too, is that there's been, you know, feminism didn't start originally asking the question, how do we help women as women? It's it asked the question fundamentally, how do we help women become more like men? Um, and so this is what we've seen for the last 50 years is, ju- is just this masculine ideal of womanhood really put on a pedestal and moving away from motherhood, moving away from all of these these very, you know, female characterizations that, um, you know, people are uncomfortable with now. Uh, So I think that that's something we also have to keep in mind, too, that when we're talking about the problems with feminism, that that's another key one and another great reason why we need to start embracing something better. But yeah, I'm all for a new a new term. I just haven't come up with one. <laughs> <laughs> Next book. Um, yeah, before exactly. we get into the, the history of feminism, uh, you know, the common response to critiques mm-hmm. of feminism today, is sort of an eye roll, you know, you the even yeah. your, your ability to even critique, you know, in the public, mm-hmm. uh, you know, square in the kind of um, school of ideas, like being able to go and present your ideas and be educated and vote, like all of these things, you didn't have the same way you had post-feminism as a woman. Mm-hmm. So what's your response to that? You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the argument that, you know, we have, you know, suffrage, we have um, economic opportunities, we have even the ability to divorce a husband if there's mm-hmm. abuse. I mean, these things, again, I'm not, I'm not here to um, pick a side with this question right away. I want to ask, what do you say to that response coming yeah. from critics sure. of those sure. that are critiquing feminism? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's another great question because that's really the the response that I think silences women into even thinking about this question. I know it did for me for a long time was just, you you, you know, you can't even call this into question because you should feel guilty for questioning it because you have these things. You know, I have an advanced degree. I, I work, um, you know, all of these things that I, you know, I get told over and over again that I, I couldn't have done if it weren't for feminism. And I, I think that that's kind of the remarkable thing because you realize on a natural level, you know, this is these are sort of natural law ideas. These are sort of fundamental things that very easily could have come about without this radical ideology. And I think, think that that's... would have? I mean, I think that's a, something yeah. I think about a lot. If there hadn't been the rise mm-hmm. of the bad feminism, would mm-hmm. there have been the rise of a good feminism that was more yeah. about opening up opportunities as opposed mm-hmm. to forcing men, women to be like men or, you know, the yeah. bad version of, of bad men? Yeah, no, I think it absolutely could have happened. And I think it was happening in many different ways. You know, you're always going to see changes. You know, it's that typical, I I have a history degree at my undergraduate, and there was always that classic answer, you know, the rise of the middle class was always the go-to answer. If you didn't know what to say, it was going to, that was going to be the answer on the question, on the, on the test. But I I think that we see that, especially a lot of the changes that happened after the wars and, and the the financial success from that. And and I think that that plays into it so much is, you know, the technology that we have, uh, the leisure 
leisure time that we have, you know, these thing, things changed dramatically in the last 100 years. And women were no longer, you know, tied to trying to get their laundry done or sewing new clothing for their children. You know, these are things that I don't think we think about how much has changed and, you know, the opportunities that we have. And I think so many of them would have come about, even degrees, women getting degrees. There's different pockets where you see women getting degrees, um, you know, throughout history in certain spots and areas. And so I think these things very naturally could have happened. They they absolutely did not have to come about because of the, the ideology that it really mm-hmm. drove it in so many ways, especially when you start digging into kind of what was underneath them and, and what was motivating them um, more specifically. So it's a it's a really interesting comment that, and I agree with you, I don't think we needed the bad in order to have mm-hmm. some of the good. And yeah. I think we can make that clear distinction. And, you know, Nancy Piercy in her latest book mm-hmm. really credits a lot of uh, the reaction of feminism, not mm-hmm. so much to, and a credit is the wrong word, it would say more it was a consequence of you know, technological changes in the workplace, Mm -hmm. you know, men leaving the sort of family farm, the family business and Mm -hmm. being separated from the family, you know, not even a nine to five. Usually those were like six to to eight. I mean, those were long, long days in a factory or, you know, Mm -hmm. away from the home. And then they come home and they're a stranger to the home. And they're already, there creates some almost like an animosity between men and women and the sense of separation. And then that kind of uh, got worse when women now said, well, we want to have more connectivity to the public space that we kind of lost because you separated, you know, the business from the home. And and then you open, you know, then they wanted, you know, women started to want suffrage before many women didn't even bother because they're like, I'm part of my household. We have a household vote. Right. We're, we're property right. owners. It's not a big deal. I'm happy. You know, where there's harmony here. Um, but the disharmony economically created this sort of disharmony uh, politically. I mean, this is kind of, I'm, I'm doing a, a bit of a, a bad job of explaining Nancy's thesis, but this is a bit of it. This is a bit that backs up her argument. What's your take on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a fascinating aspect to dig into again, because I don't think we think enough about just the way things that used to be. We sort of have this blanket like, oh, women were just chattel and whatnot. Um, And I think that that idea of um, the, the, how the family used to operate together. You know, you send the sons out with the father in the day and learn a trade, and the daughters are learning what they need to learn. And, you know, all of it is working alongside fertility as well. I think that that's another aspect that we have really a um, great point. turned away from. And um, so it, it's, you know, it's easy to see how a mother would want to stay home when she's pregnant, she doesn't feel well, and she has daughters who can help her, you know, all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I think that has a tremendous amount to, to do with that, is that disconnection. And, you know, even as a, as I'm largely a stay-at-home mom at this point, you know, I can tell you just the, the remarkable kind of loneliness, you know, you hear about just what neighborhoods used to be like. I know in my neighborhood, it's an older neighborhood, and there used to be families. I hear about the, you know, the baseball games that were played in the cul-de-sac and, you know, all of those kinds of things that, you know, I just dreamed of when I was a young when I had really small children and just needed, you know, someone to have a cup of coffee with in the morning would be great. And so all of those things have, have changed significantly because of our wealth and our, our technology. And, um, yeah, I think that that goes um, into it a lot. But the, the the bigger force that we got from feminism was really this push towards erasing our, our fertility. And I think that that is something that absolutely did not need to happen, that we have certainly the wealth to be able to manage our fertility in, in ways that we don't need abortion. You know, we don't need these things to um, allow women to f- to function fundamentally like men. And that, that's been the big push, I think. 
I love what you said too a, a bit ago about the the idea that the family sort of business was in in part based around the woman's fertility and the, the fertility of the family because uh, her bringing life into the world. I mean, that was the whole family project as the next generation. And right. if she's, you know, having that baby or, you know, there's a very young child in the home or she's, you know, struggling with a pregnancy, there's a focus on, okay, yes, we have these chores to do, but we're here to make sure that that's healthy, you know, that, that you're yeah. getting taken right. care of. And again, I don't want to be idolizing, you know, the family farm as if it's some easy project because, right. you know, the little <laughs> I've heard of friends that have right. ventured into that right. space today are like with all the uh, technologies mm-hmm. we have for family farms today, they're like, it's a not easy job. Uh, so but hard. the point yep. is, it's a family project where we're mm-hmm. in sync, we're in it together. It is hard, mm-hmm. but we're doing it together as opposed to the severing of the family, which can lead to can lead to division. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting interesting theory, and I, I do think uh, I think Jordan Peterson might make this argument as well that technology mm-hmm. has done more to impact mm-hmm. the state of women today than any ideology like feminism, and yep. we 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 forget that it's very easy to forget that. Uh, mm-hmm. Just the, like you said earlier, you know, all of the conveniences that we have and the opportunities that we have. You yourself, I think you you know you call yourself a stay at home mom who's doing this very meaningful work from home. I get to be at home most of the time despite my work that I do in addition because of the flexibility and the ability to work from home. So there's new opportunities that women have uh, and and families have, quite frankly, men too, that just they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, at one point I lived in Italy, actually. It was pretty amazing how... Just to see how much the the you know afternoon lunch is still this honored, revered thing. You know, people come home from work and they have lunch, and that's the big meal, and then they go back to work. And you know, that's something that it was just so wonderful to have that sort of built into the day. You know, certainly nice to have a nap in there too. Um, but you know, it's just amazing that these things can sort of still exist and be reminders of the way you know what what has happened with technology. And obviously, not to vilify that, it's been an incredible boon for from us in so many ways. Um, but there's something really amazing about having that family dynamic still intact in certain places around the world. Uh, before we got married, my husband lived in Italy for two years and he still talks about, we still sometimes entertain what it would be to move back to, you know, to move to ah, Italy as a family right. and try it out. Right. Did you live there when you had kids or were you there before? I did not. I, okay. I actually, I met my husband there and he's Aww. American, but we met there and, and lived there for a very short time in our marriage and then moved back to the U.S. Um, Beautiful. But yeah, so I couldn't, but I was in Rome. I couldn't imagine having five children in Rome. <laughs> So it would be pretty challenging, I yeah. think, to, to its to own chaos. That, pull that one off. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go to the history of feminism now. You started in the book uh, in the 1700s with Mary Wollstonecraft. Mm-hmm. Tell me why she's significant and how her early ideas were the first seeds of feminism. Yeah. Um, so she's a really fascinating character because she's she's given just incredible amounts of credit for the 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 birth of feminism, really. Um, but what most people don't realize is how much she was also integrated into the French Revolution and all the revolutionary ideas that were, were coming to the surface at that stage. She was very influenced by Thomas Paine, who, of course, is known for his part in the, the U.S. Revolution. He wrote that that pamphlet called um, Common Sense that really, I think, kicked off the revolution and or inspired a lot of people. But um, Thomas Paine ended up just becoming more and more egalitarian in his thinking and was very much involved in the French Revolution. Of course, the French Revolution was incredibly bloody. It was incredibly anti-everything. And, you know, this is why you had so many people that lost 
literally lost their heads through the guillotine um, was because it was just trying to tear everything down and start anew. And so um, Thomas Paine wrote this piece called The Rights of Man, and then he was responding to Edmund Burke, who was uh, uh, had an Englishman who had written about the massacre of, in France and the revolution, um, and very specifically. And so she's responding to um, Burke as well in her own way. And she first wrote the book, um, the, um, the the Vindication of the Rights of Man, and then she wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And it's The Vindication of the Rights of Woman that when most people read, I know I read it when I was in college mm-hmm. and are familiar with, and it's sort of extracted out, you know, as this... Um, cause celeb for for women and in it she you know she makes some some lovely arguments there's not you know not everything about what she says i would take issue with but i think what really was the problem was that she had um embraced this idea of of this collapse of this egalitarianism of making men and women the same and she also you know she's a tragic woman she had these horrible parents i mean awful parents and um they were really her model of marriage and um then she, you know, she got married. She got pregnant out of wedlock when she lived in Paris, and by an American man who they told the embassy she was an American so that she wouldn't be killed, and that saved her life. Well, then she went back to England, and she um, met her husband, and who became was William Godwin, and they got pregnant before they got married, and and he was actually curiously very much a- against marriage and um you know was known for being this anarchist and so they got married largely because she'd already had a child out of wedlock and saw how hard it was for her daughter um and that's they they had the daughter um Mary Godwin who became Mary Godwin Shelley and wrote Frankenstein mm-hmm. um so anyway she, her her big role really was this this these kernels of ideas of this, you know, what became smashing the the patriarchy ultimately. Um, And then she inspired others who really picked up the gauntlet, one of them being her son-in-law, Percy Shelley, whom she obviously never met because she she died in childbirth about 10 days after Mary Godwin was born. Um, But yeah, she was really what I think, you know, ignited the movement and this idea of, um, you know, collapsing everything into a kind of equality. And she also looked around her and saw all these women with very hard lives. And she thought, you know, fertility is really the issue. We've got to get around fertility and men have much better lives. So why don't we try and help women become more like men was really kind of the the push behind a lot of her work. That was a common theme of all the sort of historical Mm -hmm. analyses you did of these different characters that were behind feminism at different points in history. And, you know, I think you wrote this in the book, in your book too, they had these very, very challenging personal lives, Mm -hmm. largely that, you know, included abuse and, uh, you know, very damaged marriages or lack of marriage and people, you know, really hurt, painful childhoods. And then you get someone who's really bright and he's typically ambitious or very driven, and they're able to sort of, you know, create this ideology that is their kind of manifesto to explain themselves or explain their own yeah. existence to, you know, themselves as well as how they think the world should be or can be. And you get this sort of mix. You get a mix of some good things, like you said, and then you get some bad things, too, mm-hmm. um, out of that brokenness. What were the bad things in what Mary Wollstonecraft wrote? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think the biggest thing was, of course, just this idea of, of collapsing culture, of getting rid of that, that she really didn't like the, the church. She didn't like um, the military. You know, she saw all these things as, as fundamentally bad. And, and, you know, just even picking up that ethos of the, the French Revolution, um, I think, is just fundamentally so damaging. And we can there's actually a really great book um, written by Yuval Levin, um, who's also at EPPC, um, 
but he it's called the Great Debate, and he says, you know, Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine are really the two that ignited what we see in the left and the right today. That um, Burke represents kind of the arguments of the right, and and Thomas Paine represents those on the left. And so she's very much in that Thomas Paine sort of leftist um, direction, where you know, which started out as egalitarianism, moved to socialism, and then of course exploded as, as communism. Um, so that that's I think really it was more her influence more than anything. Her her writing is very I mean it's not easy to read I, I think especially if you're trained as a philosopher and you want very rational clear arguments. We all, you know, we all read it in in uh, high school and yes. it was like it was a so little painful. bit a little bit hard right. to get through. Yeah, it's hard to get through even you know with PhD it's painful. It's just very emotive and whatnot. So anyway I think that was the the worst thing. But the 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 next layer you know what goes on to her her son in law Percy Shelley I think is really where the damage and he adds the occult piece and the free love piece and you know those are things that he really lived in his life to the to the hilt and um that that's really where the damage i think came in because as his his wife is writing frankenstein you know he's developing this woman sithna who becomes the first independent woman that really inspired later feminists um, especially someone like elizabeth Cady Stanton. but he's also you know, there's there's an interesting thing that happens in a lot of feminism where they try to go back to the very beginning, back to Eve and the you know the Garden of Eden, and this is one of the things that Shelley does is he he changes the Garden of Eden's you know what what happens and he says you know the temptation by the serpent is really not a temptation it's actually an opportunity for Eve uh, to become you know to, to know the secret knowledge and become some something different so uh, it's it's. That kind, those kinds of threads are are really fascinating to see that there was this impetus of like we've got to go back to the beginning and rewrite this so that people understand this in a new way. Um, so it wasn't superficial; it was very, you know, they were really trying to uproot and um, undermine the Christian message in in very specific kinds of ways. Do you think it, that stemmed from for both Shelley and for Wollstonecraft, and then we're going to get to m- many others uh, once we hit mm-hmm. the 1800s and 1900s? Right. Came from a a loss of sense or grounding about identity. I mean, what what does it even mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? Obviously, you're an adult biological female versus male. But uh, right. what does what is the you know a, you could also call it a Christian anthropology? You know, the kind of yeah. um, it starts with an origin story of obviously why where we came from and why we were made. But you know, what are we moving towards? And mm-hmm. if they were rejecting Christianity at large, like the Christian vision of the dignity yeah. of the person and that they're made for love and they're made to love and be loved and for you know eternal love with God, they have mm-hmm. to drum up some other purpose, right? They have to drum up some other identity and they don't even necessarily do that very clearly, but they just Mm -hmm. pick at things and you get this sort of, you know, you get like a, you know, you mentioned, um, you mentioned, uh, Mary who wrote Frankenstein, the daughter of Mary, um, Mm -hmm. you get kind of a Frankenstein, you know, you get this sort of mix of things. Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think what really is is happening at that era is just this trying to smash any kind of taboos. You've also got Mm -hmm. the Marquis de Sade who's writing at the same time, um, writing sort of similar ideas. And this is really Percy Shelley's whole goal was to just destroy everything. I mean, he just felt himself um, this kind of force of nature and wanted to really... um, just fight everything and destroy everything. So it was it, that that was really, I think, part 
part of it was, you know, how do we undermine this because we think this is bad? He actually was thrown out of, I think it was Oxford for um, writing some tract on atheism. And um, yeah, he just w- couldn't be bound by anything. I mean, that was sort of his motto, um, that sort of, you know, force of, of will at the expense of everybody around him. I mean, that's one of the tragi- tragedies of, about reading about his life is just how many suicides and dead children and, you know, just awful relationships uh, he inculcated uh, throughout his, his, you know, his short 29 years of of life because of this drive to just destroy whatever he could, uh, you know, any kind of taboo or convention. He just thought they were all, you know, rotten to the core and or corrupting or something like that. You know, and imagination was really how you could measure if someone was moral or not, even though, of course, he had incredible imagination, was totally immoral. So uh, just totally different terms is what he was was focused on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it is that abandonment, though, for sure, that if we could use that language of the, the Christian anthropology and really having any kind of understanding of, um, you know, human flourishing in its own way. He just saw it as, you know, you can sort of do whatever you want. That laissez-faire attitude was what motivated him. Was he, was Shelley a, narcissist, a very creative narcissist, or do you think he was an, a true ideologue? Oh, I'm sure he was a narcissist. I mean, he was just, yeah, you know, he's grouped together with the, the romantics, the romantic poets. Lord Byron was a good close friend of his. And I just read a couple of weeks ago about how Lord Byron tried to buy a 12-year-old Greek girl um, for 500 pounds, which you can imagine was an awful lot of money back in the day. Um, but the mother, of course, said, no way, you know, are you crazy? But um, yeah, I mean, these were just really horrible men. And um, they just really thrived off of this sense of, of um, doing whatever whatever they wanted. But you also have to remember, too, that there was new technology. I mean, this is part of the motivation of Frankenstein. There's this new technology and this idea of creating life out of, you know, cobbling things together. Electricity is sort of coming onto the scene throughout the 1800s. And um, so people are really enthralled by fire and, you know, concepts that, that were being used in new and different ways than what they had been used before. So it felt like a new age, I'm sure, in many respects. And they were just sort of putting their own, you know, impulses, uh, you know, upon it. I recently was on a pretty uh, dark podcast called the Whatever Podcast. And Mm -hmm. the conversation was with two pornographers who were married. You know, they they had this marriage of sorts, but they were obviously creating all of this pornography. And uh, but it makes me kind of think of that, that kind of type, that person, uh, somebody who is just, you know, no rules apply to me. I mean, they'll pick a couple of rules maybe. um, But ultimately, it's sort of the shock value that helps them continue and perpetuate this sort of licentious lifestyle, because that's effectively how this couple is building, you know, their money and everything else is through the shock value of what they're doing. And obviously the, you know, selling of pornography, but, uh, you know, pornography wasn't distributed the same way as it was, uh, you know, back then as it is today, but there were different kinds of shock value type, you know, ideologies and writing and poetry that had its own audience that was growing of people that also wanted to buck the system and that started to build sort of a persona and in, in a career around some of these people. Yeah. No, you can absolutely see the connections. I mean, the Marquis de Sade is, of course, the, the father of sadism. And um, that that was sort of, ming- those ideas were mingling. We know that, that Lord Byron had a copy of one of his works. And so, anyway, yeah, it's really interesting to see sort of these exact patterns, you know, that sort of force of will. And I don't think it was really articulated. This All of these ideas were really articulated until Nietzsche 
articulates them. And that's not really in the book. I didn't want to go too deep into philosophy in the book. I wanted it to be much more readable, you know, something of a page turner instead of an academic um, tome. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's just this fascinating pattern of, you know, here's Percy Shelley, but then you see it in Nietzsche and then you see it in your podcast couple. So yeah, it just doesn't go away. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why there's that the second to last chapter, I really go into this idea of, um, you know, what's it, what's happening you know, with these people. And it's really this what what Whitaker Chambers calls the, the world's second oldest religion. It's that worship of self and of our own will instead of worshiping God. And that's really where, you know, the wheels come off and, and we see all this decadence and the destruction of culture. And, and in Percy Shelley's case, you can see it, you know, in real time as all of these women are dying or committed to committing suicide or children are dying from different diseases, part of it, because they're traveling at times they ought not to be traveling. And, you know, you've got cholera outbreaks and things like that that are happening. So it's, it's incredibly sad to, to just see the fallout of lives lived that way. If I remember it correctly, that was a particularly tragic part of your book where you talk mm -hmm. about Mary, the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary yeah. um, Godwin, right, who yeah. married, yeah. who exactly. kind of married um, Shelley and or she took up with Shelley and she mm -hmm. lost two of her children, one at, I think, three years old and one at one or 18 months to disease because he wanted her to stick around in Rome at one point when there was a disease outbreak. Yeah. She wanted to leave with the kids. He, you know, he, he was selfish. He's like, no, I'm going to stay here. And the right. children died because of it. Yeah, it's just, no, it's <laughs> you know, so, more of the consequence of, of that yeah. me focused life. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, it, it just is very clear that that's, you know, what was going on and, and incredibly tragic, too. And I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting about the Mary Shelley's, you know, I think it was a letter that she had written that's expressing all of this just heartbreak, because especially her three-year-old son, who was the last to survive, and his nickname was, his, his name was William, and he went by Will Mouse. And, you know, just this heart-rending letter that she sends about how she just, you know, she wants to tussle his hair. And, you know, I mean, for any mom, it's just like so tear-jerking to read that or, or for anyone with a heart you know you could just imagine what it would be like to lose a child like that and um but fascinatingly that these are that she's one of the the later sort of descriptions of this tender relationship between mother and child and as feminism moves on those are not published anymore you know 1900s hit and it's very hard to find descriptions like that it's always there's you know, it's, it's almost this sort of list serve event that happened where everybody was like we're just going to talk about feminism or motherhood as drudgery and in the 1900s so it's much harder to find those kinds of tender testimonies um so that's one of the reasons why i included some of them because i just thought we don't hear this enough this um you know it's heartbreak especially in light of the fact that we don't see our children die th mm. from these kinds of diseases the way they did, especially in the 1800s. Mm. Um, but to, yeah, I think those are really tender things that we, you know, we need to be reminded of because so many of us have lived through them or lived them, or, you know, we need to just be reminded of that, the beauty of that relationship between mother and, and child on, in, in general, and not just see it as something that's drudgery or suffering or, you know, not fun. Yeah, it's hard to totally invert or break nature, you know, and the, and the yeah. nature, your nature as a woman, as a as a parent, man or woman, father or mother, is nurture, is protectiveness, is connectivity, that bond. I mean, if, if something is broken in nature, that can break down, but that's the natural response. So, exactly. uh, you know, feminism later on has this especially difficult job, but they succeed in right. let's sever those bonds um, totally. Yeah. And let's get to that because you let's go into 1800s and, and early 1900s. You walk 
us through, you took us to uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, you took us to um, Susan B. Anthony. What's the, what's the truth about them and the yeah. feminism that they promoted? So this was probably the most shocking, one of the most shocking um, parts of the book for me was just to look into the work of Elizabeth Cady Stanton because I didn't, I never really spent much time looking at her writings or anything like that. And so I was kind of, I was really shocked actually, because I expected to find sort of nice platitudes and lovely statements about women. And what I found was, you know, much more sinister. And, you know, I'll probably speak more of Elizabeth Cady Stanton because Susan B. Anthony was much more of a kind of a mouthpiece. It was most of the ideas were Elizabeth's and Susan B. Anthony was single and could travel, and she became sort of the, the voice of, of Elizabeth, who was home with her children and raising her family. So she didn't have the capacity to, to be out traveling the way that Susan B. Anthony did. So she was the brains behind it. But yeah, she was amazing because, she, you know, she was raised in this Calvinist home, and, and um, at some point her older brother dies, and there's all this lament that she was born a, a girl. And of course, she's trying to, to battle all that. Um, she also falls in love with her brother-in-law, and her brother-in-law falls in love with her, and um, they realize, you know, they're going to just destroy their family if they pursue this relationship. So they, you know, wisely and prudently avoided any kind of relationship. But of course, there, you know, there's all this discussion about how they still secretly remain in, in love with one another, and and very quickly after all of these things happen, um, Elizabeth Cady married her husband, whose first name is totally escaped me right now, Stanton, Mr. Stanton, and. Um, they, um, it's, it's, they had a, a very sort of bucolic early few years with the children. She describes very much how, you know, she loved being a homemaker and just all the, the order and whatnot, things she learned from her grandmothers and things like that. But, um, anyway, I think, you know, there's a lot of speculation that she was just, the, her marriage didn't remain a happy one. There was all this division between once the, um, the feminist piece kind of came into play that that was really a, a severing of the relationship. Um, but she's, she becomes very focused on this idea of feminism, but it's all within the context of, um, the occult. I mean, she's, she's in New York city. You've got the, the, um, new, uh, um, the great awakening, second great awakening that's happening in the United States and everybody's, um, doing, going to these revivals, but they're not just revivals that we would imagine them to be. They, they end up kind of devolving into, um, seances and orgies and, you know, all kinds of colorful things are going on, um, at these events. And so she's in New York city where there are actually people that are, are having seances and there's this rapping on these tables that that's where they're getting the answers from the spirits. And so, um, you know, it's, she's, sits at one of these spirit tables and that's where she gets the idea for the Seneca Falls convention. Um, and that table I think is in the Smithsonian today, but (laughs) not a great origin story. No, it's not, it's not the greatest story. Um, and that's the thing is that there's so many of these layers that are just polished over in her life. I mean, she became very anti-Christian. She was very much focused on, um, getting rid of Christianity. She wrote this book called the, the women's Bible. That's, it's actually pretty funny to read because it's so much like an, like an angry teenager sort of commenting, going back to first, you know, the old Testament and, commenting anytime there's a woman in it that there's there's this commentary about how things ought to have gone um but uh and there are other women that are involved in this that are um consider themselves theosophists and this and, and elizabeth herself is involved in it to a degree uh so there's and this is was this sort of um spiritual you know it's this woman madame blavatsky sort of 
weaves together all these crazy religions from around the world. Apparently, she traveled to Tibet and then to, you know, she picked up voodoo somewhere with from Native Americans. And anyway, it's just this kind of cobbled together spiritual mess. And that's what they were involved in. That was their big thing. And um, anyway, she ends up actually getting thrown out of the group, the organization that she established for suffrage because, first of all, her, the, all of the drama and, um, scandal, really, of her women's Bible. And then um, then she gets involved with this woman named Mary, um, Victoria Woodhull, who uh, was renamed by the press Mrs. Satan. Um, Victoria was very much a medium. She'd been one her whole life. She'd been a prostitute. I mean, she was just a mess. And there's this huge scandal erupts. And I won't go into the details of that because it's just way too long. Um, but it, it's everybody sort of the whole both. There are two com- competing suffrage movements at that point, And all of them are implicated in it. And that just it really kind of destroyed the movement because of all of the infighting. And, it, you know, that's why suffrage didn't happen for another 30 years. Um, so anyway, she she there was a lot of really awful things happening that I don't think, you know, makes it to the, the museum story. You know, there's a lot of racism, all kinds of things going on. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you're sharing, you had a very complicated personal life, and then she's into, you know, basically witchcraft, and she right. uh, is inspired by that, uh, according to her own story for this, for Seneca Falls. Seneca Falls right. is this uh, it's called the first real meeting where they got gathered um, right. a lot of abolitionist women, right, who were kind mm-hmm. of left out of abolitionist meetings because they were women to now get together and not just call for abolition, which was great, but to also say women need more opportunity in yeah. civic life. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, no, I think that's a really great articulation of it because, um, and it, you know, it's interesting to see how the at that point it's it's this is after the Civil War, so they're kind of working on, t- you know, piggybacking on the ideas that came from abolition. And then we can see that again later on in the with the Civil Rights Movement, feminism sort of gloms onto that. So you see sort of these these patterns emerging in that in that respect as well. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a, a great way to, to, to put it, is that that was something that she sort of threw herself into um, because she really saw, again, that there was this double standard for men and women, and she wanted to, to rectify that. Um, in many respects. And, it, you know, so it's that that's really the motivation for it. For what sure. seems so tragic to me is it didn't have to go the, the way the dark way in the sense of you could have had a Seneca Falls without yeah. uh, the occult. You could have had a Seneca Falls exactly. without. Now, yeah. now the argument by some sort of in the very fundamentalist world um, would say, no, it's impossible to sort of have women mm-hmm. um, in civic life equal to men without all of these evil things, because women's nature mm-hmm. is more evil than men. They're more, you know, they they were de- deceived first by the serpent. This is their um, um, interpretation of Genesis. They were deceived right. first. Women were deceived first by the serpent. Eve took the first bite. Women can't be the leader um, in politics mm-hmm. because she's more by nature deceivable. Therefore, mm-hmm. it is the occult and Satan that wants women in politics. I mean, that's kind of the, and in, and in business, that's kind of the, the argument, right? From right. Uh, some yeah. folks on the, um, I mean, hyper-traditionalist, I'm just going to call them. I'm not, it's hard to give them a, a, a name um, for what even that ideology would be. What's your response to that, by the way, that interpretation, mm-hmm. that response to the truth about, uh, you know, can't, uh, state, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's inspiration mm-hmm. of Seneca Falls and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, that, the account in Genesis, what would be your response to, to their argument? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, it's funny. I, it's just not really even ever come up because I, it feels so uh, beyond the, the the you know limits of rationality. Given the fact that we know how how capable both men and women are, for, you know, in sinning and behaving badly, and so I, I think that there's women have an incredible set of gifts, and it, you know, it's great when we can bring them into the public square. Um, but when it happens at the expense of, you know, w- what we have seen later on, then it becomes a problem. But I, I don't, I don't think that there's much of a leg to stand on in light of the fact that we, you know, we know Adam and Eve fell together. I think the the fundamental difference is just really recognizing the, the value and the importance of, um, you know, the family and the gifts that people have and the different ways in which they're, they're being used. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I just haven't really <laughs> thought about that aspect because it just feels so far-fetched. And yet there are, are certainly people that, that would make that argument, obviously. But, um, yeah, I think that all of these things ha- had the capacity to be done without witchcraft, you know, to be done without um, giving free love and the destruction of the family a real you know, platform to, to mm-hmm. focus on. Um, and that, that seems to be the, the bigger issue is, you know, it's, it hasn't just been, it's not just been, the, the elevation has happened where it's, mm-hmm. it, it hasn't elevated women in a way that's been healthy. It's destroyed the family. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the bigger piece to, to focus on is that element. Um, and not so much on, on what it is that <laughs> we are doing in civic life or not doing. Right, right. And I think that's the that's the great opportunity that you are seizing right now with what you've written and your work, Carrie. And what I'm trying to do in my own way is how do we um, how do we restore what's uh, been been lost? And then how do we also purify some of the things that have goodness in them, but there's also brokenness. And so how do we steer it, steer it all forward? All right. So uh, one quick question, though, on um, uh, uh, Susan B. Anthony, because there's a pro-life organization, you know, we work with that right. live action right. Uh, right. named after her, right. right? Susan B. Anthony list. And you, yeah. but you mentioned that she was more sort of a mouthpiece for Katie Stanton's mm-hmm. ideas. Um, she mm-hmm. was kind of on the road when Katie Stanton was not so right. much. What Was there any harm to mm-hmm. what Susan B. Anthony advocated for in your view? Yeah, was there well, anything problematic with her yeah, uh, ideology? Yeah. This is a harder piece to answer because there, one of her biographers spent four days destroying, burning up her personal letters and all of her personal writings. So there's very wow. little. Why? That why? That's the question. We don't know why. Um, you know, that, that if she was really do, doing all this remarkable stuff, um, you know, why, why would a biographer of all people burn that instead of preserve that? Um, so there's all kinds of speculation. You know, some of it, too, she, she obviously was very much involved in the, the seances. In fact, she, I, I think at one point, said she was a kind of nervous speaker. And she said, you know, I wish that I, she basically said, I wish I was a medium so that the spirits could speak through me so that I didn't have to do it myself. Um, so I, I think that she was very much engaged, engaged in these kinds of things that, you know, wasn't um, foreign to her. I think it's also interesting, too, that one of the things that, that Elizabeth Cady Stanton did was actually rewrote Seneca Falls with her involved in it. And they hadn't even met at that point. Um, so what she was trying to do was sort of brand them as the, you know, authentic source of, of the, the, the origins of feminism and that kind of thing. And that, you know, there was all kinds of of argumentation with the other groups and whatnot because of that. So, um, and the other the big factor is that they, the two groups broke off um, over, uh, over racist issues. I mean, the Elizabeth Cady Stanton very much did not, did not, she resented very much that, that black men had the capacity to vote before she did. Um, and that was really what ended up defining 
the work that she and Susan B. Anthony did, um, that was their kind of their platform. And the other group encouraged it and didn't have a problem with with Mm. um, minority men voting. Um, So, yeah, I I think that there's a lot of um, there are a lot of things that, you know, we would sort of raise eyebrows now about. And, um, you know, so it's there's there's not really a a clean story there either. But besides their personal lives and besides their sort of engagement in the occult, which is all very bad, of course, um, what was there anything in their actual ideology that they were publicly promoting regarding Mm. women's role, the the role of women in civic life that you think was problematic? Yeah, no, I mean, I think absolutely, because this gets back to that idea. I mean, free love was something that they, this is where they ra- ran into trouble with, with Victoria Woodhull, is they, they gave some, um, gave her a platform to speak, and she mm-hmm. scandalized everybody because she came out and started talking about free love. And so this was, you know, it's one of those things, it's hard to know, like, are they doing this so they can get publicity, or the, do they really believe in this? And um, those are sort of o- left open questions. But we know based on where Elizabeth Cady Stanton was going um, with the, the rejection of Christianity and, you know, this idea of um, also restructuring society, this, um, you know, all this anger directed at what was, at that point, it wasn't, they weren't, it wasn't called the patriarchy either, but trying to sort of, um, you know, do that, do the same thing that Mary Wollstonecraft was doing was just this egalitarianism. Um, those are problems. So it's it's the those three core ideas of uh, are are certainly in, involved in what they're doing. Um, you know, but so Katie I think Stanton damage. But to understand too clearly, because like the you know the legacy of Susan B. Anthony, the whole again back to the pro life organization named that named that right. named after her is that she right. was pro life, and actually many yeah. of the these right. sort of feminist forebears. I'm talking about this mm-hmm. um, the suffragette movement, the early suffragette movement, not the second wave feminists, because they were yeah. very pro abortion and very off the reservation. But some of these early feminists, you know, were pro life, that they were actually mm-hmm. pro family. Is that mm-hmm. true? Do you do you yeah, think oh, that's no. a I mean, misunderstanding a- of the history? No, they were they were absolutely pro life. I mean, I think that that I think partially because it was just unconscionable to them that this wasn't something um, that they thought was appropriate. Although there was a- absolutely um, there was an abortion clinic in New York City that they um, this woman Victoria Woodhull was involved with, um, there were brothels, you know, I mean, this was not a very Victorian time. And I think that that was something that was also sort of surprising and that surprises a lot of people is sort of this um, sense that we have that these women were very prim and proper. And, you know, those were just not things that were going on because they were, they were first and foremost focused on suffrage and they were sort of willing to do all kinds of things to, um, to achieve that. But, uh, but yeah, the, the abortion issue is something that they were, uh, of course, you know, it wouldn't even be something that they would, you know, could conscionably mm-hmm. promote in any way. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there are certainly things that that came about in the second wave that they would not agree with. Um, so it sounds it sounds like your criticism was that they basically platformed and partnered with people and they were involved in the occult themselves, which is very, very problematic. But in addition to that, and that was kind of in vogue at the time, you know, it was part of the Second Great Awakening. They kind of, it was not just women doing it, but men doing it. It was this in vogue thing to do. Um, Kind of like today's tarot card reading or in like urban outfitters and like, what the heck, right? Mm -hmm. But this is what it's in vogue for kids today. It's very, very tragic. But uh, I think your criticism is really centered around the lack of sort of uh, maybe philosophical purity where they were inviting in like Victoria Woodhouse 
call and they're inviting in some of these folks that are already dabbling with or straight up promoting the free love movement. Ultimately, they're going to lead right into Margaret Sanger and the, you know, pro anti-fertility, let's call it anti-child movement. Um, and so they, because they didn't have a, a strong foundation philosophically, all they knew is we are not being treated well in civic life. And then they were very intelligent. So they kind of had their own ideology that they spun up around that. But they lacked this philosophical grounding. Mm -hmm. It was very easy for the free love ideas, some of the more hyper occult stuff to take its root and say, oh, this is, you know, women's suffrage. Oh, that's a, that's a good idea. But now I'm going to hijack. I mean, this is Sue Ellen Browder's argument in her book, Subverted, how I helped the sexual revolution hijack the women's movement, that basically these other ideologies found a nest in mm -hmm. some of the good aspects of early feminism. And the early feminists weren't wise enough, quite frankly, and, and strong enough to keep it out. And they and some of them even accepted it. And then it became this, you know, terrible thing that it is today. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't know if that's the case because that the a lot of the ideas originated more from the philosophy than the other way around. You know, the the, the suffrage movement ended up becoming sort of a a platform for them, but we don't see it change dramatically. In fact, it just keeps getting worse and worse. So I think it's, you know, it goes back to Shelley and this idea of the independent woman mm -hmm. and this idea of how do we make women like men? I mean, that's that these are the kind of fundamental questions that they're asking. And so suffrage is sort of part and parcel of that. So I don't I don't think that there was a hijacking that happened. I think it was these ideas were already there and they're just sort of fascinated by them and see that they, these could have good value and are are moving forward, trying to push them forward. So I don't think that there's, you know, there were certainly women who w were more innocent, but they weren't, these were not the main leaders of the movement. The main leaders very much had kind of all of these aspects that Shelley had already espoused and were, were really kind of tugged into mm -hmm. to all of it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think you could say that there was a hijacking that happened. I think that, um, you know, Sue Allen and I have talked about the later ones, and she, she actually just recently wrote a she review. She endorsed your book, I think, too. No, she did. She was yeah. great. Well, she didn't endorse it. She wrote a review of it and said okay. that, you know, we had a disagreement, and she basically says I was right and she was wrong because my point was, mm -hmm. you know, we can we can we save this word? And um, she thought we could, and I, I don't know that we can. So wow. anyway, I don't, yeah, I would not agree with the idea that somehow there was this sort of this pure idea. I think they've all, all of it is sort of enmeshed with one, one another throughout the the 1800s for sure. Wow. So uh, Susan B. Anthony List should perhaps consider a name change. <laughs> I'm not going to recommend that. I think that they've, <laughs> they've, they've branded that well. And I think it's true. She was pro-life. Pro I think that's that's great. But I think that, yeah, there's there's a lot of baggage there that most of us don't know. So anyway, that's... So yeah. we don't have yeah. a ton of time yet, but I have two more things that I really want to get into um, if, mm -hmm. we, if we can uh, do it. So one of them is uh, enter communism and Marxism. And yeah. the way that feminism evolved alongside those ideologies, those political mm -hmm. theories. And then I do want to, this is connected to the patriarchy. You know, what is the patriarchy? Right. Um, where did we even get this term? It's all kind of yeah. caught up in, in this is all um, all together. So uh, meaning, I know that the you talk about the term patriarchy comes from actually the communists who are assigning it in the first time in a negative context. So tell us about how feminism is connected with uh, Marxism and communism. Yeah, so this is a huge, huge question, and I think a really important one. The uh, 
the word patriarchy was was articulated in a negative sense first by Engels, who, of course, was the co-author with Karl Marx. Karl Marx died, and Engels um, wrote this piece on the family and picked up kind of a lot of the issues that, that Marx never talked about, um, one of which was the, um, you know, motherhood and, and um, production of children and whatnot. And so he actually uses the word patriarchy in the first negative way, really referring to in the class distinctions. You know, you've got the landowners who are the oppressors, and then you've got the proletariat who are the oppressed. Um, that was kind of the, the dynamic that they had set up. And I think it's a familiar one to us now because we've seen Marxism sort of invade different ways. Um, but what first happened was that this application of this, this oppressor and oppressed was then shifted on to women. Um, and, you know, we, there's a lot of um, communist infiltration. I mean, certainly around this 1917, you know, you've got the Bolshevik revolution and you've, you see what happens to the family. You know, the, the first thing that the Marxists are always like, against is the family because they see how strong a family is together. And so they're trying to always break that up. And so what happens is, you know, children are sent to be parented by someone else. Um, the moms go to work just the, the same way that the men do. You know, this idea is to create these perfect workers. And abortion ends up becoming completely just commonplace. You know, you can't even own a stitch of land, but you, you can have an abortion at the drop of a hat. And, um, uh, so the the problem is women actually used it too much, and they they had to stop. They had to start re limiting it because they weren't repopulating themselves at all. Um, but that's really the 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 kind of thing that the communists were trying to replicate in the United States, and they knew that they couldn't do it just with you know military power. So they ended up shifting gears and trying to do it on a cultural level. And this is where we really see the work of um, the Frankfurt School. You know. Um, Marcuse and and um, Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich actually wrote a book, was published in 1936, called The Sexual Revolution. And that really became the, bl the blueprint uh, for the movement. But, you know, fast forward to the 1940s, and you've got someone like Betty Friedan, who was already, be you know, even when she was in college, very much involved in leftist politics. And she joins this organization called the Congress for American Women that ended up being disbanded by um, the congressional, you know, um, committee for un-American activities because it was such a, a piece of propaganda. Um, mm -hmm. so she was involved in that, even though she, you know, always said she was very much just a housewife and she wasn't interested in women's issues until the fifties. Um, but she clearly, in fact, there were articles that I found, um, written by her prior to that, that made it clear that she knew what she was doing with, with a communist ideology. Um, so she's fascinated by this whole, the communism, by communism. She wants, she hates Hitler. She's fighting against Hitler, but she, ironically, she has this quote in one of her notebooks that talks about, um, how she, she firmly believes that women will never be free until they are producing things in the the marketplace. They have to be working. Um, the home she calls in her book, The Feminine Mystique, which was published in 1936, uh, it's a comfortable concentration camp. She actually uses that language, um, which is really ironic because, of course, that was the, the you know, what's the phrase at uh, Auschwitz? Arbeitsmacht free. Work will make you free. Mm -hmm. um, so she's engaging the exact same kind of ideology that she thinks she's fighting against. And this is just exploded on the American scene. Three million copies and first, you know, few years she sells of, of this book. And um, that was really, I, I think, what set off in many respects the second wave of feminism was this idea of getting out of the home. And then, of course, it just keeps multiplying by women like Kate Millett and Angela Davis, who were trained by Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse 
to start infiltrating um, colleges and the culture with their ideas. And this is really where feminism takes on that oppressed versus the oppressor ideas that I just talked about in, in classes. Men are the oppressors automatically because they're male and women are the victims automatically because they are female. And, you know, that's that those that piece, um, you know, that, that central idea of the oppressed and the oppressor is absolutely what we see in woke culture. And, and you know, it's just manifest itself all over um, in what we're dealing with today. But it wouldn't none of those things would have come about if it hadn't stuck so well in um, in the 1970s. And, you know, even all these radical ideas like how do we get rid of gender? Um, you know, these are all come directly from the um, from the Marxist vision and it, rather than the occult, atheism was really their focus, but they didn't care because the occult didn't harm them. Um, you know, they, they were focused on atheism, restructuring society, and free love. Those are the three things that feminism had also been engaged with. So they worked together just almost perfectly, and that's really where the movement just exploded and, you know, where we sit today because that's the, the, the vision that was passed down and created the dominant narrative of what it means to be a woman in the culture today. So how did it go from, you know, originally women should be able to be like men in terms of the way they work and the way they operate politically and the way they behave? Um, and then to, okay, women are the victims and men are the aggressors. And then to today, you, t you write in your book extensively about how these, uh, the, 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 the foundations of feminism has brought us to, in part, the gender ideology of today that has led to, you know, the social contagion of young yeah. boys and girls being trans and, you know, all the nightmare right. that we're seeing with, uh, you know, pronouns and, uh, you know, all of it, LGBTQIA plus whatever, you know, a million yeah. uh, letters. What's, right. where does that connection, explain that connection for folks? Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, it's obviously not a short answer, so I'll try and make it as short as I can at this stage. But um, the real focus is is a question of power. I mean, this is what the, the communists have been so effective in, in terms of, um, you know, just their success in our culture, is the focus is on power and manipulation. And um, so, you know, they're they're going from this, this place where they want women to get out of the home. Um, they want to break up the family. That that's really the goal because the family has a kind of power that they don't they don't want. Um, so that happens um, in terms of getting women out of the home. Um, you also have, of course, the the very important piece, which is you know you know better than anybody, um, the abortion piece. I mean that this is this is has to happen because this is what allows women to operate and function much more like men than embracing our own fertility and managing around that, certainly as a family. Um, so those things happen. But in the midst of all of that, you also have this ideal that, you know, Gloria Steinem talked about, all, all kinds of feminist women spoke about very openly of just getting rid of gender altogether and getting rid of men altogether. I mean, this is the idea of smashing the patriarchy. There are oppressors. There was a real privileging of the, the lesbian relationship. Um, there was even discussion about, you know, killing all men. And, um, and this is, you know, this isn't, old. I mean, we, it's, it's come back. You, you can hear it, you know, people talking about this in culture in, in different ways. And I have some examples of it in my book. Um, so those things are all happening. But this, this underlying idea is that sexuality and, and our sex is not fixed anymore. And that comes from Simone de Beauvoir. I mean, it's its own thread, um, where she, this idea that we can sort of ex express ourselves as in any way that we want, we can identify ourselves in any way that we want. Um, and that, you know, this is, 
part of the L and the G, the the, the gay and the lesbians that's, that started out, and then it just kind of keeps spiraling outward. You know, people are have different ideas, and, you know, we're adding more letters all the time to the LGTB um, alphabet, you know, list. So that that's part of it but that's but fundamentally it's really becomes about power because you're breaking up the family you're also breaking people i mean there's we even have on record you know magazine editors getting together and seeing the value in um you know telling women they need to look and be this body size and they can help them you know all the products that are sold from the brokenness of women in the family um you know there's definitely a a engine for profit that's that's at work here um, but I think that another big piece of it is also just the role that birth control has played in it. Um, and obviously people have so many different ideas about the, the merits or demerits of it, but it's, it's unavoidable to, to, you know, you can't skirt the issue that what it has done is changed the, the sexual relationships between heterosexuals to look much more like the relationships of, um, same sex couples or, or whomever, um, because there's no fertility in it. So as we get rid of fertility, I think this is ultimately the the, the biggest question, the biggest problem, um, is that it's just it, all sexuality just becomes about pleasure. It's not at all related to fertility. Um, so that that's these are the kind of the steps that have led us to this place where we actually don't see a distinction between same sex marriages and our own marriages. Whereas you know you go back 50 years and. People are still sort of scratching their heads about it because they see the important role that fertility plays into it. And this is also why, you know, we can't define what a woman is because we don't, we have so detached it from our own fertility that those things feel, um, you know, antiquated or sort of unimportant. But we can see, you know, we know that that a a woman's fertility isn't, uh, you know, being a mother isn't just about being a biological mother. It's also psychologically and spiritually. Those are really important roles that women have always played throughout history. And you know, we see as more and more women are not having children. What well, what's happening? Well, we're 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 finding surrogates. We have pets um, that have become children. You know, people actually use that language of pet parents. So that desire to still mother hasn't gone away, which I think in a certain respect is incredibly hopeful. We haven't fundamentally changed women the way that we think that we have. Um, we've just found kind of a new direction for it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 complicated, and I you know I just condensed into four minutes or whatever, but I, I make it, you know, the argument for in, in like four chapters, but um, yeah, I think it all, it all, it's amazing how much it comes, one leads to the next very, very easily. Well, and we didn't even get into it in this conversation, but it's in your book and it's something a lot of our listeners know about is, you know, the history of Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and it started with birth right. control and uh, medicating a woman's fertility out of existence so that they can be sexually available basically to men and just kind of and to them right. to whatever they want to do. And in part, that breaks down marriage, breaks down family and obviously leads to the abortion mindset where I'm entitled to sex right. without children, without having mm-hmm. the, the, con- the natural consequence, the blessing really. It's a blessing of a child. And so if I do get pregnant, you know, using birth control, I'm entitled to backup contraception, which is abortion. That is what, uh, that is why we have, uh, there's some global estimates. It's in the billions, billions of abortions worldwide since, um, in the second half of the 20th century. And then in this century, because of the proliferation of that idea that we should have as adults sex without family, without children, without marriage, Right. So all 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 the way back to um, you know the first seeds of feminism and the ugly fruit of today. What is the takeaway you want uh, your readers and the listeners today to have? 
Yeah, I, I think the biggest issue is to really, um, you know, start being critical of the narrative that we're being fed over and over and over again. I think that that is is hugely important for all of us to start seeing. You know, this is there's an alternative way to understand ourselves as women, and the way that we're get, we're being presented and told in our lives is not the right one. And um, you know, we when you get to this place where you're told that your children are actually your enemy, or a husband is an enemy. Um, you know, which is not to say that there aren't bad husbands. It, of course, happens. But the the reality that this these are the impediments to your happiness instead of an avenue to your happiness. Mm -hmm. I think that's the real um, piece that needs to leave all of us sort of questioning. You know, what is going on? What what are we being fed? What are we being told? And and start looking deeper and seeing. You know, there's there's just a, this wasteland, and you can't really build a culture when you've got you know the two sexes have this deep deep resentment towards one another and you can't even form families because of it um you know those are the, the these are really important things that we need to start reconsidering and, and looking at again especially if you know we know that their their civilizations have a, li a lifetime and um you know there's very clear evidence that we are on certainly a path that of, of decadence, and I think all of us are seeing it and feeling it, and so much of it has to do with be, because we've absorbed these ideas of, of Marxism in you know such deep ways. So I, I think that's really what I'd love people to start with is just start scratching beneath the surface and seeing that maybe what they're hearing isn't always true. So we, uh, I saw Barbie recently. You wrote a piece on Barbie. And so we'll kind of close with a little uh, mini analysis of Barbie. It's a huge film, obviously over a billion dollars at the box office. And I saw it and I think I saw what you saw, which was just, you know, all the negativity around men, around children, around marriage, and then the sort of me-centered, the me-centered purpose of that Barbie discovers in the end. It's all, it's really all about her. Um, and it was very telling I thought that she went to the gynecologist's office in the end and not the OBGYN's office in the end because right. it was right. gynecology without fertility, without mm -hmm. fruit. You know, there's no babies in, in this gynecologist's office. And that's what Planned Parenthood is, remember. Planned Parenthood, you could say in its best light is a gynecologist, but it's one that also kills babies. So it's like the opposite of an OBGYN. But it was kind of like I'm going to Planned Parenthood as opposed to I'm going to go to a family, you know, or, or a, a doctor that's more about holistic women's health and can you know, appreciate children and, and how to uh, bring children into the world. So what's your message to folks listening, especially the ones that really wanted to see the good in Barbie? Because I do know people who found it very entertaining and it's fun to dress up in pink for those, you know, some women right. and go with their friends. And there were a lot of jokes right. and it was very, you know, there was some, there were some good, like, you know, kind of emotive moments in the film. Like mm -hmm. I found myself sort of feeling the emotion when Barbie is seeing, you know, the world and the real world and all these like, you know, family and she's seeing an old person and she's sort of feeling humanity, a sense of humanity. But what would be your word to people that yeah. want to see the good in Barbie, but right. to really, you know, say, hey, this is really what Barbie was about. What's your take on that? Yeah, yeah no, I, I couldn't agree with you more on your articulation of it. I think the biggest issue is really to see what it is that we're responding to, because Barbie is is presenting the same old message, you know, the patriarchy is bad and when we need women, at, you know, to control everything so that we can we can make the world a peaceful place, which we know is a big myth. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a single necessary man in the whole movie. You know, it's just they're all just 
fluff. Um, but I, I think this is where, you know, women really have to be discerning because, again, it, it, you know, all they did was add some pink, um, a few emotional moments, and um, a, some nostalgia to, to that movie. And that's really what is, is riding on. I mean, this is why women really love it. Um, and I think that that's what we have to see. Like, uh, which, what, what ways are they manipulating me? How am I being manipulated into sort of going to that movie and absorbing all the other content that they're promoting? Um, but I'm not seeing it because I, I'm really, you know, um, taken in by these, these other aspects. So, you know, I think that's part of the brainwashing is just really paying attention to the way that these things are presented. I think it also in light of that creates a huge opportunity for those of us who are pro-life to say how do we create a movie that's actually funny that can use these kinds of elements and for the good and you know this is what um, my co-author noel marrying and i have done with our our work theology of home is really to try and promote how do we take our message and present it in beautiful and attractive and compelling ways instead of um you know, just what the left has done, which is just their ideas. And I think this is what we, an area that is so, you know, beckoning for us to get into um, as pro-lawyers to, to start making movies that are, you know, actually funny and humorous. I think we have a much better message. And, and I think that there's so many opportunities for really changing hearts and minds um, through that kind of medium instead of just always, you know, just being critical of what they're doing. What, you know, why can't we start doing that? And that's one of the things that my research has borne out is this is how women have been destroyed through the, these kind of um, tactics that really appeal to our emotions. And um, so I, I think we need to do the, this, the same thing, but do it in a way that's, that's healthy and beautiful and compelling because we've, we've got all of that. It's sad, too, because they didn't need to have that those bad messages in Barbie. They could have had a Barbie that in the end celebrates, you know, the beautiful harmony between men and women and that celebrates marriage and that celebrates children and that celebrates beauty. I mean, it could have gone a completely different direction Mm -hmm. and it could have been just as fun and sparkly. (laughs) But it's like, no, they had to like jam it chock full of yeah. Marxist and feminist ideology that was kind of sprinkled over with glitter. So and a couple jokes, so it kind of yeah. made it, uh, you know, fun and palatable. Right. No, I think you're exactly right. So I think we've got a great opportunity. Well, listen, Carrie, you have done such amazing and, and groundbreaking, I believe, work on feminism. Where can people buy The End of Woman and continue to follow what you're doing? Um, if they want a signed copy, they can get it at theologyofhome.com, my blog, or it's certainly places like Amazon and um, my publisher, Regnery. Um, but yeah, that's those are the, the best places. And of course, my work, I publish a lot of it at my website, carriegress.com. And then I've got a, a daily blog for women um, at theologyofhome.com as well. Awesome. Well, we'd love to have you out here in studio in California next time you're in town. There's lots more to talk about. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Carrie. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Carrie Gress. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave the podcast five stars. Give us a review if you're listening through podcast. If you're on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to the Lila Rose podcast on YouTube and become a member of our Patreon. The Patreon is how we reach more people with the podcast and we've got some exciting stuff we're working on. You can go to our Patreon at the link in the bio and we're gonna be doing a special live stream just for patrons next month. So check out our Patreon, become a member at any amount and we'd love to see you next month on a special live stream just for patrons.